Let's pray. Lord, uh, as those uh, lyrics just still resonate in our, in our minds and maybe for some of us in our hearts, we pray that wherever we are in the journey of faith towards faith, maybe feel like we're journeying away from faith or through the ups and downs, may you be our cornerstone through it all. And would you open our, our hearts, our minds, and our ears, and our eyes to see and hear something from you today. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. I'm back. I don't know if that means I passed last week's exam um, or not. Oh, you didn't have to clap. Thank you. That's very kind. Uh, <laughs> Felt like I was fishing for it there for a moment, didn't it? If you're visiting, I'm really sorry. That's kind of an in-joke uh, from last week. Um, many of you know I'm a recovering academic. And uh, I'm still second week preaching in the lead pastoral, learning the distinction between preaching and teaching. So, have you had your coffee? Because uh, I've still got my oil plates on, but here we go. By the way... Hi to everyone watching on the live stream this morning. Wonderful that you could join us this, this uh, way. And thank you for taking the time to tune in. Hope you're okay. I know we still have a number of people in kind of COVID isolation or going through COVID. And if that's you this morning, God bless you. Hope you get well soon. And uh, if you're in the Newcastle area, then we'd love to welcome you to our in-person services again as soon as you're fit and able. But for those of you who are here in person, um, hard to tell if you're watching the online stream. I, I watched it again on Tuesday from last week. Uh, watch the game tapes. Um, it was hard to kind of tell how many people were actually in the, in the auditorium. And some of that's on purpose because for sort of privacy reasons or other sensitivities, we don't want to show everyone without your permission, uh, unless you happen to sit in the front rows here and then, then it's fair game. Um, but it's wonderful to see all your very many, many faces here today. Thank you for being here. Really appreciate you. Well, uh, the, other, the other day I, I pulled a bottle of wine off my shelf, a bottle of red wine. It was a bottle of wine that I'd been saving for a special occasion. And just a sidebar, it wasn't that very long ago that a Baptist preacher would never have dared open a sermon talking about a bottle of red wine. It wasn't that long ago that a Baptist uh, preacher certainly wouldn't have confessed to opening a bottle of red wine. I say confessed to opening a bottle of red wine. I'm sure it happened on the slide, on the side. Now, when I first started sort of coming to know a little bit about Jesus, I switch off from that slide for a moment. When I first went to a church, it was an ultra-conservative small country church, which will remain nameless. It's where I came to know Jesus, so it was a wonderful place and a wonderful family. But it was the sort of church where we used to make excuses for Jesus when it came to wine. Anybody remember those churches? Maybe been to one of those churches? And the excuses went something like that. Well, remember all that wine and wedding stuff with Jesus? Yeah, well, Jesus uh, probably doesn't need our excuses, but let's set that to the side for a moment. We'd say things in this church that said, well, that wine that Jesus miraculously converted from water, well, it was so low in alcohol in those days that it was kind of more like soft drink. Anybody been around Baptist churches long enough to remember that one? Yeah. Which, of course, is why Paul has to exhort his readers not to get drunk on soft drink 
because soft drink leads to bad behavior, right? So anyway, that's a sidebar. <laughs> Sometimes things that seem really sacred to us at a point in time seem less so in retrospect. But that's a side point. When I turned over this bottle of um, what once would have been offending wine and read the back label, I suffered my first great disappointment. I don't know if you can read that up there, but the back of this special bottle of wine that I was saving said, drink now or until 2020. Nuts! But being just even a wee portion Scottish by blood, I opened it and drank it anyway. Second great disappointment. Anybody else ever drunk wine that was well past its best buy date? Anybody else know that sometimes not all wine improves with age? Yeah. I'm not even going to start on the bottle of champagne that Louise and I were given for our, for our engagement that we opened on our 10th anniversary. It was one of those. It was, it was a very great disappointment. But this wine and that line almost seems now like a metaphor of our lives in recent years. As if the wine itself knew in some strange prophetic way that from 2020, all bets were off. <laughs> old normal, old wine, 2020, whole new ball game. Well, in this series, starting last week, we noted that, like many of us at the moment, sorry, we noted that, like many of us at the moment, you may be facing change on a number of fronts and a number of levels, partly due to the disruption of COVID, but also for other reasons. For example, on the personal front. And we particularly focused last week on that level. But also we are going through change, those of you who are regulars at New Vine, on the church level because we're experiencing at New Vine a significant leadership transition. But also because of COVID, we're seeing a rare convergence of changes also at the third level, the social cultural and we might say technological and generational and other levels of change. And we looked at these three levels of change, mostly at the first one. And we also looked at some not necessarily helpful or help, healthy responses to change, but nevertheless three very common responses to change. Resistance, reluctance, and sometimes even resentment. And we found in this passage and its context in the book of Luke, a challenge about how it is that we can respond to change on a personal level. The challenge is this. Are we holding on to that old wine, somehow thinking that it's going to get better with age, when a new normal, a new world, whether we want it or not, needs something new? Because all bets are off. And we explored, therefore, what might be more healthy and helpful ways to respond to change that include looking, uh, sorry, this week we're going to look at it, uh, sorry, no, let me go back here, there we are, I'm, my iPad is looking different to usual, let me see if I can change that while I'm at it, I'm only seeing less than I normally do, that's okay. So we, there we are, I'm sorted out, sorry folks at home, if you're playing along, this is uh, a, a little bit awkward there. So today we're going to look at change on these three levels, but we're going to pick up the same three points. It's really not working for me, is it? Come on, back you go. Gonna, there we are. Woohoo! I have conquered in Christ. 
uh, we, <laughs> we looked at these three perhaps more healthy ways of responding to change. Continuity, a mid-change, looking for those anchor points that give us some sort of sense of connection to the past, even amidst a flurry of change. Courage, a mid-change that might even feel as a threat or be unwelcome or unwanted. Courage to look for the opportunities that are still coming our way. And thirdly, confidence that Christ has not clocked off. He is still working in our 21st century. Christ alone, still the cornerstone today. Well, this week, as we promised, back in order now, uh, we are looking at change on these other two levels. Levels which are actually really closely intertwined. You may recall from last week this quote uh, from a report by McCrindle, the social research company, who said late last year, only occasionally in history do massive demographic changes combine with huge social shifts ongoing generational transitions and unprecedented technological innovation so that within the span of a decade, society altogether alters. Australia, says McCrindle, is currently in the midst of one such transformation. And such seismic changes throw down a massive challenge to the church and our church especially when combined with the acceleration of change caused by COVID in recent years. In fact, Tony Morgan, who's a leading US church consultant, puts it like this. He says, the new normal is here. There is no wait and see because we're already in it. And the systems and strategies that were barely working before aren't going to work today and in the future. Ouch. In other words, the brutal truth is this. There's no going back to 1995. There's not even a going back to 2019. We're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. This is a new normal. So what I want to propose today is that the new normal, still itself a fluid and unsettled reality, requires us to keep the new in new vine. In other words, as a church, we need to think anew, to renew what we do, to navigate the new normal and world that we're in. Because the risk for us at New Vine is not only that those of us who've been here a while keep saving up or hankering for that old wine, the even greater risk is that we have to rebrand, that we have to change our name from New vine to old vine. Now, that'd be a successful rebrand, wouldn't it? Because of some vintners and uh, vignerons, is that right? Did I get that right? Have we got any vintners or vignerons here today? Sommeliers? Okay. Hopefully none watching at home either. But according to some vintners, they're the people who grow the vines, tend the vines, etc., say that a new vine becomes an old vine around about... 25 to 30 years of age. Now, old vine wine might sound enticing when it comes to red wine, but it doesn't have such a ring to it when it comes to a church, right? And what's more, old vines tend to become less productive. They're more readily damaged in the pruning process, and eventually old vines die. So, 
how do we keep the new in New Vine? How do we keep the life, the growth, the new in a new normal? To answer that, before I get to the preaching bit, I'm going to do a little bit of the teaching bit because I think it's helpful for us to eyeball just a small sample of some of the changes that are going on around us at the technological, social and religious levels. Now, hands up if you're still carrying around the same phone you were using in 1995. Maybe it looked a bit like this. Remember those? The Nokias, the Ericsson, Motorola. Whatever happened to Motorola? Back in 90, 1995, when, when New Vine was planted, there was no... All right, deep breath, here we go. Facebook, Snapchat, YouTube, Instagram, Wikipedia, WhatsApp, Wi-Fi, Skype, Spotify, Siri, Bitcoin, Netflix, iPads, or iPods even for that matter, self-driving cars, emojis, NFTs, AI, AR, or barely even SatNav unless you were NASA and owned a whole bunch of satellites. Google was not even a noun, let alone a verb. And the Internet of Things wasn't yet a thing. In fact, the Internet itself wasn't barely a thing. In 1995, just 0.5%. 4% of the global population had access to the internet. 0.4 in 1995. Well, last year in 2021, last da data that I can find, it was 59% of the world's population, which may actually surprise you that it's not higher. But from 0.4 to... And it just goes to show what a difference it is to live in a developed country like ours to many countries in the developing world. And I remember, I don't know about you, but I remember the very first time I ever saw an email... It was in 1995, and it was courtesy of a professor of IT at Adelaide University. And we sat with anticipation for 10 minutes while this email downloaded on dial-up connection via a VPN from the Adelaide University. And in the end, it was two lines of text. <laughs> Spectacular. How far have we come in technology? But these sorts of technological changes, they're only just the beginning. Converging with these vast technological developments, for example, the rise of Zoom and hybrid working, work from home options, are major, more recent demographic shifts, many tied to our pandemic experience since 2020. For example, again, McCrindle Research has found that 60% of Australians who live in cities, basically, in, recent, in the last 12 months have considered moving to a regional area. Any of us live in a regional area? Yeah. 60% of Sydney-siders are looking over the fence going, I think their lifestyle's a bit better up there. They've got the beach, they've got vines, etc. What's more, on top of that, all of these other sort of demographic changes are going on. 59% of people surveyed value a backyard more than they did three years ago, for obvious reasons. Nearly the same amount valued uh, a walkable, a safe, walkable community more than they did three years ago, for obvious reasons. 53% valued a strong local community more than they did three years ago, and so on. Apologies on the live stream if that's a little bit hard to read, or at the back rows there. Well, this has led to what's been called the Great Migration, driven by what McCrindle refers to as intentional lifestyling. That is, the thousands of city-siders tree-changing and sea-changing to regional centres to improve their lifestyle and to find connection to a local community. 
Is this ringing any bells for anyone? This is so important for us as a church when we consider for a moment where it is on God's great earth that He has planted us through the foresight and wisdom of AJ and Paul and all of the team back in 1995. Think of the lifestyle Newcastle offers and our location in this Fletcher in my Maryland area in relation to the M1 to Sydney for hybrid or part-time work, in, work, work from home, travel once a week to Sydney, that kind of thing. We're a regional area. We have the beach. We have backyards mostly. We have walkable local communities. And we have 3,000 new homes, as I've said before, going in within four minutes' drive from where I stand today. The Great Migration is bringing, it feels like, and will feel like, if you ever got to travel down Minmai Road at, at peak time, we'll feel like it's bringing the world to our doorstep here at New Vine. Has anybody got goosebumps? I sure have. Well, what an opportunity for the gospel with so many people coming into our community in the coming years. But speaking of the gospel, a more sobering reality. Most of us have seen with our own eyes and felt with our own psyche the major shift that's happened in relation to faith in Australia in recent decades. As I've said a few times now, if you're a long-time churchgoer, it can feel like all of a sudden you've woken up in a land where people who used to think like you, believe like you, behave like you, now don't even seem to like you. Now that can even make us bitter or it can make us better at living out the gospel in our 21st century community. But we do see this reflected in the data on the dramatic departure from mainline denominations and also in the rise of no religion. In the 2016 census data, that's the latest census data available, the 2021 data will be released not till June this year. But in that data, and the trends don't look good, but based on the 2016 data, 30% of Australians identified with no religion in 2016. Back in 1996, which is the closest data to 1995 when New Vine was, pla uh, was planted, basically 71% of the population of Australia still identified as Christians. By 2016, that was down to 52%. And I'm guessing that for the first time in Australia's uh, white history, that will drop below 50% in the 2021 data. Well, we'll see. But this shift in belief and church attendance has meant a massive move away from what were understood as Christian moral and social ethical values, so that many Christians now are highly conscious of our loss of social power, perhaps explaining a lot of our angst at the moment around various issues. Because undoubtedly, it is a painful change to find yourself increasingly, and perhaps for the first time, in your lifetime in a minority and one which can therefore sometimes feel under siege. Maybe that gives us some sympathy and empathy for others who, who live in minority groups. But in terms of its practical impacts for a church like New Vine, the implications are compellingly clear. Tony Morgan again from, uh, from the Unstuck group in the US, he says this, a church that doesn't focus on reaching new people has already started to decline and will eventually die. How do we keep the new in new vine? Well, one obvious and necessary answer is we've got to reach new people. Without intentional and effective ways to connect with new people, 
we will mirror the census data. We will become an old vine and we will eventually die. This is the brutal facts. It might not be in our lifetime or it might be sooner than we think. Now, one more uh, key area of change, just to eyeball before we move on. And if we had time, we could look at this in more detail, but it's, it's worth noting this just briefly. And this change, this generational transition is happening both inside and outside our ch churches, but it's driving a lot of the social and cultural change. Now, a refresher. The generation breakdowns, if you don't quite know who's a boomer and who's a Xer and who's a those other ones, then here's a quick refresher. For close to 40 years, the baby boomers have been the dominant generation, dominant in numbers, but also dominant in values and economic and political power in Australia. But there's a new kid or kids on the block, and they are more than matching it with the baby boomers. These are the millennials or Generation Y. Millennials, according to generational experts, are at the forefront. Who's a millennial, by the way? Who fits in it? Good on you guys. That was a pretty small representation, actually. Well, anyway, lovely to have you with us and you at home. A lot of them are serving out, that's right, out in creche or mini bees or chasing kids around the, um, God bless them. But according to the generational experts, millennials are at the forefront of driving some of the most uh, significant social and cultural and church transformation since the 1960s, the rise of the boomers. And indeed, they are now in our society a larger block than the boomers. But they're also rejecting boomer values and mindsets. Think that OK Boomer moment last year. And on the whole, they and the generations that follow, it, follow are much less likely to currently attend church or to identify as uh, Christian, and they are the ones more likely to report having no religion. But there's some good news in this space that I'm going to come back to a little bit later on. It's not all bad news by any means. Well, if you put all these changes together, we have a recipe for profound, maybe even historic transformational change. That can leave our head spinning and our heart sinking. But the good news is, History-making change is it not itself new. History is made of history-making changes and a lot of normal stuff that goes along with it. And of the truly seismic shifts that have happened in history, a singularly spectacular history-making moment, uh, moment happened hidden away in the back streets of a Roman backwater at a church special general meeting. It's a moment that is both deeply significant and highly instructive for us today amid all the change we are facing. So, teaching, maybe this is the preaching bit, I don't know. You can make up your mind. But this is a moment, the moment I'm talking about is captured in, in chapter 15 of the book that we call Acts. Now, uh, a content advisory. If you're new to church, this may confirm some of your worst fears about the weirdness of Christians. Even in these days of sex-positive, radical openness, it must seem unbelievably weird to drag yourself out of bed on a Sunday morning, uh, caffeinate on a happy face, 
cajole the kids into the car, drive to the leafy western fringe of Newcastle, stumble in a church full of strangers to hear some middle-aged white guy talk about circumcision. So, out of respect for our newcomer sensibilities and male sensitivities, I'm going to use a euphemism for circumcision. For you long word nerds, this is a circumcision circumlocution. Like the t-shirt says, I use lots of word, long words to make me look more photosynthesis. Seen that one? Yeah. So, instead of calling it, we'll call it surgery. So, last week we looked at an episode in the story of Jesus as recounted by our historian friend Luke. An episode which hinted at the major history-making upheaval that Jesus himself was bringing in the early decades of the first century. Well, I'm just going to go off that slide, I'm sorry. Well, this week... It's not going to let me, is it? Oh, come on. There we go. There we are. There we are. I'll get this thing sorted out. Okay. Well, this week we pick up the story about 20 years after Jesus was crucified, resurrected, and returned to the Father. Acts is the sequel to Luke's story about Jesus. And we pick up the story uh, with a reformed Pharisee, a guy who'd had his name changed, not by deed poll, but by doing dirty deeds dirt cheap for a chief priest. Now, Paul, who was formerly Saul, had been the original anti-Christian, persecuting the early followers of Jesus until an unexpected encounter with the risen Jesus himself on a day trip to Damascus. And in a blinding, blinding flash of light, Saul, soon to be Paul's life, took a radical turn from persecutor of those pesky Jesus people to card-carrying pesky Jesus person himself. When his eyes grew accustomed to the new light in Christ, he met with some understandably cagey Christians to help him make sense of what the heck just happened. And rereading the Old Testament scriptures in light of Jesus led him to the earth-shattering realisation that the crucified and risen Jesus that he'd encountered on the Damascus road was the fulfilment of a whole bunch of unfinished Old Testament business. Perhaps most significantly, the promise to Abraham, Father Abraham of the many sons song, you know the one? The promise that all nations on earth would be blessed. A promise which had never been fulfilled. And he realised that a crucified and resurrected Jewish Messiah wasn't therefore just good news for the Jews. This was equally front page news for non-Jews because all nations were now included in God's promises to Abraham. And I don't know about you, but I don't have a Jewish mother, so I'm really happy about that today. You see, Paul had been preaching, preaching this great news to non-Jews. And he was adding that because Jesus had fulfilled all of that unfinished Old Testament business, non-Jews were not bound to the Old Testament laws, which was a huge relief, particularly if you were part of the 50% of his audience, which was male. Because one of the key markers of being part of God's people under the ways of Moses was surgery. That's right. However, we see in our passage that Paul's preaching runs into a roadblock. To paraphrase Acts 15, certain people came from Jerusalem and started teaching the non-Jewish Jesus people that unless you have that certain surgery, you cannot be saved. 
In other words, where Paul is preaching salvation by faith after Abraham, they're teaching salvation by circumlocution, surgery. So Paul and his buddy Barney, they push back hard. They say, no, why? When Jesus has fulfilled all that, would we still want to force it on Gentiles? There's a bit of verbal argy-bargy and no third umpire to make the call. So Paul and Barnabas set off 300 miles to settle the dispute at a special general meeting of the church back in Jerusalem. This is the church still led by some of Jesus' original 12, such as Simon Peter, and also by Jesus' very own brother, James. And at this council overseen by James, the say yes to surgery crowd fire off their opening arguments. All's fair in love and law keeping. If we had to have the surgery, keep the whole law of Moses, so should those outsiders and aliens. By the way, I'm not saying that the surgery is painless when you're a baby, but it takes a whole nother level of commitment and courage when you're a grown man. Remember, no anaesthetic in these days, just lots of that first century soft drink to dull the pain. So when the apostle Peter stands up, he makes a speech in support from his own experience of God accepting non-Jewish believers by faith and the spirit. And finally, after all of the debate, Judge James the Elder, who was the younger brother of Jesus, stands up, cites the Old Testament prophet Amos to conclude that including all nations in God's plan has always been God's plan. And then James moves a motion. Actually, he just kind of makes a judgment call. And he says this, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Wow! 20 centuries of Christendom later, it's easy to plough past this passage and miss the momentous nature of this moment. No salvation by surgery, but also no 613 commands, not even the top 10 or 612 minus the one about surgery. Paul would talk about this later in Galatians and Romans and elsewhere as freedom in Christ or freedom from the law. Because after all, the law was fulfilled, completed, perfected in Jesus in a way that no one else ever did or could or would. It was no longer binding. It was certainly not relevant to the Gentiles. The pivot in Jesus was recognised and then locked in by his younger brother James and the Jerusalem Council in this history shaping moment. All the promises in Christ are yes and amen. So don't miss this because this moment opened the way in the decades and centuries for fo to follow for what had been a trickle to become a steady stream and then a flood of non-Jews the world over to turn away from their old impotent pagan polytheism to the one God that the early Jews and Gentiles alike worshipped in Jesus. It opened up the way for the way of Jesus to become the largest religion in the history of humanity for all the good and ill that is wrapped up in that history. However, there's one more detail that we can't just gloss over. After coming to their decision, 
James and the Jerusalem council send Paul and Barnabas and some other reps back to tell the Gentiles, you can put away the pocket knives, boys, you can come back in from the car park, you're off the elective surgery waiting list. All that the heavy hitters in Jerusalem asked was that one, you don't eat food, which was A, offered to idols, B, strangled, C, cooked, rare or medium rare, actually not bled correctly. Um, and two, don't commit sexual immorality. Now, let's pause for a moment. Sounds a bit like a return to the laws. Well, there is a lot of debate about what's going on here. But what the council seem to be doing is to be encouraging the Gentile believers that a little continuity will help avoid a lot of controversy. As Andy Stanley says, this is less about keeping the law as about keeping the peace. Remember, no top 10, no 612 or 13. In their context and with their temptations, they were only being asked to avoid meat sacrificed to idols and to avoid sexual immorality. What's shining through is the council's heart and God's heart that no barrier should be erected to stop Gentiles from coming to Jesus. In other words, outsiders may not keep our code of conduct. They may not behave like us. They may not even like us. But we should not make it difficult for people to turn to God. In fact, you might say that, that by implication, our responsibility is to do everything in our human power to make it undifficult for people to turn to God. Now, to be clear, I am not talking about soft-selling, soft-serving, soft-shoe-shuffling around the truth. The truth is what it is. And at the end of the day, it's only through an encounter with Christ by the Spirit, whether on the Damascus Road or the Minmai Road, that can change human hearts, beliefs and behaviour in such a way. But imagine with me for a minute. Imagine if the church, our church, lived this out. Imagine if we took this to heart and instead of building barriers, we build bridges. Even more, imagine if we intentionally, continually took time to identify and tear down every obstacle we could find short of selling out that makes it difficult for people to turn to Jesus. Imagine a church that instead of being known for judgmentalism and self-righteousness and self-protectiveness and self-interest became known instead for self-sacrifice, self-surrender and selfless, other-serving, neighbour-loving, enemy-embracing love. Like Jesus. So how does this help us to keep the new in new vine? Well, last week we identified these three C's to help us respond to change at the personal level. And now we can revisit these to answer how we might respond as a church to, to change at the social and cultural levels. Firstly, continuity with the past. Just as some continuity helped the Gentile Jesus people avoid controversy when they sat down at the dinner table with the Jewish Jesus people. Continuity is really important as we transition leadership and adjust to the new normal on many levels. Now, in terms of leadership, let me reassure you 
if this sermon has kind of got you really scared. We won't be throwing the baby out with the bathwater here. The old new vine remains a vital, fundamental foundation to who we need to be moving forward. The same DNA is still in our veins. It remains that, that vital basis on which we go forward. And you'll probably actually find that a lot doesn't change. And I'm certainly hoping that those things that you treasure and value don't seem to be getting torn down without good reason. But New Vine is so well located, so well positioned to capitalize on the demographic changes, the Sydney cider tree changes and intentional lifestyle changes mentioned earlier, precisely because of what Paul and AJ and all of the team, you included, me included, have built in the last 27 years. But as we've seen, socially, culturally, technological and generationally, we are not in Kansas anymore. A new normal needs new wine from New Vine. While our DNA remains the same, some of our structures, our systems and our strategies, uh, even our understanding of God's vision for New Vine may need to change to enable us to continue to be faithful to Jesus in the new environment in which we find ourselves. So that is going to call for courage. Courage, as we said last week, to look for the opportunities amid the change. Reverend A.R. Bernard from New York's Christian Cultural Center said this, and this is all about the balance between that first point and this one, which is going to be a challenge for us to navigate. But he says, if you change the things which should, should continue, you lose your identity. We don't want to lose our identity. But he says, if you continue things, you should change, you lose relevance. New vine in the new normal will have to grapple with new challenges and new questions, some of which we can't even imagine right now. But as we've seen above, we have so many opportunities. By great God's grace and Paul and AJ's foresight, where we are so strategically positioned here. Thousands of new families, hundreds, perhaps thousands of whom have a home at New Vine that they just don't know about yet. But beyond the demographics, perhaps we are in a moment, an opportunity to hit reboot on how people in our community think of the Christian church. The opportunity to give people a reason to come to respect, maybe even value and love the church in the community because they see us genuinely serving and being a force for good in our community. An opportunity to be a church which genuinely and intentionally reaches out in Christ-like love, service and live witness to our neighbours, to our schools, to our scout group, to our ushers next door, to the shopping community, to all of those around us and then outward from here from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and the ends of the earth. Because even amid the changes to religious affiliation that our society is going through, we can still retain our confidence that Christ is still at work. My confidence is your faithfulness. All his promises are yes and amen. But here's the risk. As the Christian church finds itself increasingly in a Judean-like desert of cultural marginalization, 
perhaps the greatest temptation for us is to try to take our fate into our own hands. Try to wield whatever power we can still muster to protect our own interests and serve our own ends. Now, some of these issues in this area are complex and fraught, and I don't want to make light of them or be misunderstood or seem insensitive even to the risks. But my point is this, and those of you who who don't identify as followers of Jesus, maybe you can hold us accountable on this. If we Christians believe that Jesus is the cornerstone, if we Christians believe that Jesus is Lord and still at work in the world, that he hasn't knocked off or clocked off because it's all too hard, if we believe that, then maybe we should live like that and mean it and believe it, not with arrogance, but with quiet and determined, even joyful courage, born of confidence that God is still God and Christ can cope with this post-Christian turn of events. Indeed, who's to say that God may not even be working for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, even in this setting and this decade? Who's to say that this post-Christian turn might not just somehow winnow out the wheat from 1,500 years of cultural chaff and see the emergence of a generation of youngsters who have not been vaccinated against Jesus by a poor experience or a poor perception of Christianity based on a pharisaical form of faith? There was a lot in there. Sorry to kind of hit you with all of that. But here's why that's important. Because... That surprisingly good news that I mentioned before? Well, McCrindle Research has found this. I don't know if you can read that, especially at home if you're watching the live stream. But of the younger generations, 45% of millennials and Gen Z, the next group down, reported that they were very or extremely likely to attend a church service if personally invited by a friend or family members. If you include the likely or somewhat likely, it shoots up to around two-thirds or more of these younger generations would attend church if they were invited personally by a friend or family member. This, surprisingly, is way more than boomers or builders. It was a much lower proportion said they were prepared to, to attend church if invited. This gives me reason for great hope as we move forward. As uh, McCrindle says, this data is worth reflecting on a little longer. In this seemingly secular era, where the church is perceived by many commentators to be on the decline and culturally outdated, almost half of young adults invited to a church service by a friend or family member would very likely attend. Hey, that's got to be a little bit of good news in all of this, right? So, in close, McCrindle again. Much of what we had pre-COVID-19, we will never see again. From regional growth to redefined work practices, it's not the continuation of how things were, but the start of a whole new reality. We are not experiencing a reset so much as a reinvention. That's the sort of level of transformative change. Whether we like it or not, we are going through. Now imagine for a moment, if instead of being swept past in that reinvention or driven past by the thousands of new families and singles who will move into the Fletcher Minmai Maryland in the 2020s, imagine if we could tap into that reinvention. Imagine if we could bring enough reinvention to how we think, how we do what we do, how it is that we connect with our local community 
to tap into this new normal. You see, call me naive, but I have just enough faith to believe that God so loves our post-Christian 21st century secular society every bit as much as he loved the pagan, polytheistic, first century Gentile world. And I have just enough faith, or maybe just enough naivety, to be unshakably convinced, therefore, that New Vine can rethink, renew, and keep the new in New Vine in the new normal. I have just enough faith or naivety to believe that we can provide a welcome that wows people, a community that post-pandemic people are yearning for, a home they didn't know they had, a faith they didn't know they needed, and a hope that they never hoped to find. And I have just enough faith or naivety to still believe in the still good news story of a God who loves us to death and back and who would come from heaven to earth to let us know and to die for us and our neighbours and our community and Newcastle and the Hunter region and the nation of Australia and the world. And I have just enough faith or naivety to believe that the crucified and risen Lord is still reigning and that He invites us into lives of worth and meaning and witness to the fact that He is quietly but inescapably at work today to redeem the world and set all things to right again. Imagine what our church can be if we grab hold of this moment, these opportunities with courage with confidence that Jesus Christ continues to work and reign in our world today. Imagine if you and I lived like we believed it and if we built our lives going forward on this truth. Maybe this is our moment, New Vine. Maybe it's our moment to shine with new wine. Wine which to our neighbours and our communities won't taste kind of like vinegar. Wine which is sweet and flavoursome and full of characteristics of the kingdom of God. Wine for now and for the decades to come and into eternity. If the band would come up now, I'm going to pray. Well, there's what, lots in what I've said today that, that we didn't really have time to unpack. A lot of kind of rabbit burrows and detours that, that probably need it lots more sermons to unpack or lots more Bible study to think through. But if nothing else, can we take away from this moment an openness to what it is that you might want to do in the days and weeks and months and years that stretch out ahead of us in this new normal? Let us not get caught up Saving wine that should have been drunk until 2020. Would you open our hearts, open our ears, 
may we hear your Spirit speak about the way in which we should go together as a church in following Jesus into the world that you so love. Would you give us the grace to build our lives of worth and meaning and purpose on Christ. And we pray this in His name, by the Spirit, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen.